Hey there, I'm Daphna Chazen, registered dietitian and weight loss coach, and you're listening to the Down to Earth PCOS Nutrition Podcast, a place for practical advice for women looking to balance their hormones, ditch dieting, and discover mindset shifts that will keep you motivated and empowered on your healthy eating journey. Are you ready to get started? One of the absolute best things about hosting this podcast for me is that I get to bring on some of my friends and colleagues, people that are doing amazing work out there in the field of nutrition and wellness and have positively impacted the lives of so many people, thousands of people to come on the podcast, to share their expertise and to provide valuable advice to all of you. So today's guest is a perfect example of this. Elizabeth Durabertis is a registered dietitian and certified diabetes educator. She has been in the field of nutrition for over 20 years and have helped thousands of people change their lives, live healthier, and eat better so they can meet their health goals easily and successfully. She is also a personal friend of mine and someone who I actually met in my very early days in the field of nutrition. I was Liz's intern when I was still a student at NYU, and she's always been an incredible mentor and personal friend. So I'm excited to have her on the show today to talk about weight loss myths, which we always need to revisit because new ones just seem to be popping up every single day. Now, before we dive into my conversation with Liz, I want you to make sure that you are subscribed to this podcast since I have so many valuable interviews and solo shows coming up that I know you will find helpful. And if you're already subscribed, you will get notified as soon as I publish new episodes. So make sure that you do not miss a thing and hit that subscribe button. And now, without any further ado, let's get into my conversation with Elizabeth Durabertis. Hey, Liz, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Daphne. It's so exciting to be here. Yeah, I know. I'm excited for today because we have a big topic to dissect. Um, and you're a true expert in the weight loss field. So I'm really excited to talk about some common myths and get the facts straight. And we'll dive right into talking about some of the common misconceptions around weight loss that you see in your practice and that we both see online and in other spaces. Before we do that, um, can you introduce yourself so my listeners know more about you? Sure. So my name is Elizabeth DeRobertis. I'm a registered dietitian, and I'm also a certified diabetes educator. I've been in the field for over 20 years. I started the nutrition center at Scarsdale Medical Group, and that's where I am now. I've been there for about 13 years. I see about 90 patients a week. Um, I do individual counseling. I run weight loss groups. And talking about weight loss really is my passion. Um, I see people for all different reasons, but Really with weight loss, what's interesting is that there are still so many myths out there. So it is such an important topic to talk about. You know, I say in, in my area, I work, I work in an area with very highly educated um, clientele who come in and they say things like, I can run a business, I can raise a family, I can do all these things successfully. Why can't I lose weight? And I think a big part of it are these weight loss myths that there's just so much information and misinformation out there. So I'm really happy to be here with you today talking about it. Yeah. And I think this past year with the pandemic and everything, people were online more and it seems like there's an explosion of so many misconceptions, so many different 
fad diets and quick fix solutions that people are exposed to. So we're going to get it all sorted out today. Um, tell me a little bit about what are the, what's the first kind of myth that you see people come in with? What is the main misconception people have around weight loss? I think in recent months or this year, let's say people are talking about sugar more than anything else. Um, over the years, you know, things have changed. Of course, people are talking about the keto diet and paleo and all different things. And I think the main thing is that the calorie message has gotten lost. So I, I usually have food packages all over my desk and I ask people to pick up the label and tell me what they look at. And so very often they look right at sugar and then they make sure there's fiber and they look at the protein, they scrutinize the sodium, but very often they're not looking at the calories. So I guess the first thing is that a myth would be that looking at sugar is enough. We do want to look at sugar. We want to look at carbs and we'll talk about all of that. But I think that the first main thing to know is that we do need to look at calories for weight loss. And I guess the myth around the idea that it's, it should be only about macros or about our nutrients or you know, blood type. And we could talk about all those things. Um, but the most important thing to know is that we really do need to look at calories and anything that tells us otherwise is probably also leading us in the wrong direction. Yeah. So it can be really confusing when someone's looking at a label, there is a lot of information on there, uh, but you're saying you have to start at the top. And if you look at nothing else, you have to identify how the calories of that specific food may fit into your own diet, right? That's right. Cause I also think in my area where people again are like, they're reading a lot and, and they know a lot and they shop in like really healthy stores. They'll say things like, you know, I only go to whole foods and Trader Joe's and I only buy foods that are organic and all natural. Why am I not losing weight? And it's because we can also take in too many calories from those really healthy foods. So I very often see that people take in too many calories from things like nuts and avocado and olive oil, things that we know are good for us and we should be eating them. But the myth that the calories don't count in those foods is something that we want to be conscious of um, because people can be definitely just taking in too many calories from healthy foods. And would you say if someone's already feeling like they're within a correct calorie range for them, would you then move into looking more at the quality of the food and, and the macros and things like that? Like, would you do it in a, almost like a step-by-step -step approach? Yes, exactly. I actually had a patient this morning ask me, um, she's been losing weight, she's doing great. And then she said, you know, I know that my calories are right. What if I was eating the same amount of calories from brownies? And we had a good laugh about it. And we talked about that. Of course, when we came up with her plan, it wasn't all about brownies. Um, and we said probably she would still be losing weight, maybe not at the same rate, but the fact that she wouldn't feel as well. So the reason why we want to then look beyond calories is to make sure that we're eating in a way that stabilizes our insulin and our glucose so that we feel good to, to um, stabilize our hormones during the day. So if someone is spending too many of their calories on carbohydrates, um, I think what most people know, especially people who work with you, is that when they're having too many carbohydrates, that their body's probably producing too much insulin at that time. And that extra circulating insulin just makes them feel hungrier and crave more carbohydrates. So they end up in a cycle where they feel like a lot of ups and downs. And someone may feel like I should be losing more. Why am I not losing enough? And it could be that they need to reduce their carbohydrates and put more of an emphasis on protein and on vegetables. It helps your calories to work harder for you. You get more food during the day, but you also feel more stable during the day. Mm -hmm. Okay. So that's good. So yeah, I definitely think that people are very confused about not just the calories and how they break down with the different macros, but also 
you know, is there an optimal timing for the food? Is there an optimal, you know, schedule that I should be following? And we hear a lot about intermittent fasting and timing of meal and spacing and things like that. How can someone really make sure that they're not messing up with their hormones or spiking their insulin unintentionally throughout the day? What would you say to about that? Okay. So I definitely want to talk about intermittent fasting and we'll come back to that in a second. I think that spacing out our carbohydrates during the day is an important thing to focus on. So I mentioned I'm also a diabetes educator. And so for people who have diabetes, an important thing is not overwhelming your body with too many carbohydrates all at once. And I understand that this is something that works well for PCOS as well, which is that you're never asking your body to have to break down too many carbs at one time, because that's what can raise blood sugar, but also raise insulin level. So I talk to people about spacing out their food in a way where they're eating something every two to three hours during the day. They're not going too long without eating. I really do believe in listening to our hunger and fullness cues. So I work with people to figure out like some people will have breakfast and then a morning snack and then lunch, an early afternoon snack, a later afternoon snack, and then dinner. But some people don't need all of those eating occasions. Some people don't need the snack between breakfast and lunch especially if they're delaying breakfast, which we'll talk about with intermittent fasting. Some people need one snack to get through the afternoon. Other people need two snacks. So I work with my patients to figure out what their best pattern of eating is. I always say this, this is not about not eating. This isn't about like going as long as we can and trying to eat as little as we can because then we end up hungry and we end up overeating. So I really emphasize strategic snacking as a way to stay in control of our appetite um, and then of course the nutrient density of those, of those snacks. Mm -hmm. So snacks should be like about a hundred calories each. They should have some kind of either protein or fiber in them to help to keep our blood sugar and our insulin level level stable. Mm -hmm. So it's definitely not a good idea to cut carbs. Nobody needs to really do that to lose weight or manage their insulin. I think a lot of my listeners already know that, but they're still nervous about adding carbs. Um, and there's definitely, you know, this dichotomy between, oh, this is a good carb. This is a bad carb. And that's not necessarily the best kind of language to use. So I'm glad you're talking about do have the carbs at every meal, but space it out. Don't have a huge kind of dose of it in one sitting. That's going to help optimize your blood sugar, which really is a cascade effect with everything else that's going on. Right. right. That's exactly right. And so one of the things I talk about is with carbs, one way to look at it is that we should have carbohydrates that give us an additional nutritional benefit. So like if we have fruit, that's a carbohydrate, but it's giving us certainly an additional nutritional benefit. The other thing I talk about is portion controlled carbs versus scoopable carbs. So if we have a portion controlled carb, like a whole grain English muffin, or if we make a sandwich on a healthy, lower carb, but grainy high fiber bread, you can't really mess up that bread because you're having two pieces to make your sandwich or if you have a sweet potato with a meal compared to scoopable carbs where we need to scoop out like rice or pasta or quinoa or any of the grains, it's easy sometimes to scoop a little bit more than we think. So I try to emphasize the portion controlled carbs a little bit more than the scoopable carbs, but I certainly think that we should have healthy carbs spaced out during the day. Okay, great. Now let's talk about intermittent fasting. And then I don't wanna forget, I wanna go back to talking about grains and specifically gluten. Okay. So okay. let's talk yep, about intermittent myth. fasting. Yeah. Yes. Okay. So you and I haven't talked about intermittent fasting in a while, even though we talk about all things nutrition. Um, my thoughts on intermittent fasting have changed during the pandemic. Okay. And so I'll tell you a little story as to why. Um, when I first 
heard about intermittent fasting, I would have put it in the myth category. And my initial thought was that it was just a behavior modification tool. So I really, I think that for the most part, when someone's losing weight, again, it boils back down to the calories they're taking in. And when I first read about intermittent fasting, what I pictured was that if someone was buying a bagel on their way to work and they were snacking too much late at night, and now they heard about intermittent fasting and someone said to them, oh, only eat between 11 a.m. and 7 p.m. So they cut out their bagel and they cut out their late night snacks. I was initially thinking it's a no brainer. Of course, they're gonna lose weight, but just because they're reducing their calories. So I thought that it was just a, a, you know, a way to put boundaries on the day. Then when the pandemic started and a lot of my patients were staying home and burning less calories, I had a small category of people who were having a hard time. So it was specifically women who were already being very careful with what they were eating. I would say they were probably at about 1200 calories a day. They were logging their food. They were already doing everything right. And they just weren't losing weight that the, way, the way that they were before. And I think the primary reason was that with everyone staying home, we were just burning less calories in the day. And by moving around less, that also does impact our hormones. So maybe the insulin and glucose levels were off a little bit from, from not burning as much energy. So I had to think of what else can we do? What can we just try out here? So I did a little pilot study where I asked them to just delay their breakfast and see what happened. And so we didn't pick a time. I didn't say wait until 11. I said, just wait and eat breakfast when you feel hungry. And a lot of these women had been eating early before because they were commuting to work. So they were eating breakfast at like 7.30 or eight in the morning. And now they waited until they felt hungry. So some eat at 10, 10.30, some are 11. And they, most of them tried to get in a walk or some kind of workout before they ate breakfast. And they all started to lose weight better and faster than before. So going back to it with a more open mind, what does make sense is that when we go the whole night without eating, our body starts to burn our fat as fuel to get through the night. And when we wake up in the morning and we eat something, we convert over to burning the energy that we just put into our body, which is not a bad thing. But by delaying breakfast just for even an hour or two, it can leave someone in that fat burning state for a little bit longer than they were in before. So I think we wanna be careful. We definitely don't wanna to go too long without eating. Cause I think that if someone waits too long and they end up too hungry or headachey and not feeling well and they end up overeating, now the whole thing was a waste of time because they're gonna overeat. But a lot of my patients now say that they feel comfortable and they feel good just waiting to eat breakfast until they feel hungry. And so by delaying breakfast a little bit, I'm finding that then lunch becomes a little bit later. And when lunch is a little bit later, maybe they only need one snack to get through the afternoon rather than two snacks. So for a lot of people, it does consolidate their eating window a little bit. So at the end of the day, they probably do save one to 200 calories by eating in that pattern. Um, and it seems to work for some people. It's not for everyone, but it could be something for someone to try, especially if they're feeling stuck. Yeah, I think what happens with this where a lot of people kind of um, struggle still with intermittent fasting is that they start their window of eating too late and then because they want to accommodate the nighttime snacks, they don't really want to give them up. So they say, okay, I'm going to eat a big dinner and snacks at night anyway. So I'm going to wait until 2pm to start eating that defeats the purpose. That's not absolutely defeats the right. And so, and I also didn't even focus as much at night with these people because they were already being careful. And so I don't think that there's anything that we should do that, that ends up with too many calories and too many carbohydrates late in the evening, because then we know blood sugar, insulin, hormone wise, having that many carbs in a short time frame is not going to really set anyone up for success. Yeah. And so, yeah. So I think I agree. They definitely shouldn't wait too long 
but just a, an hour or two delay for some people may make the difference. Okay, cool. I love that you started your own experiment during the pandemic. <laughs> <laughs> I did, yes. So good. Depends. Yeah. All right, let's talk about gluten. What's the deal? All right, so this definitely also goes in the myth category. And so I always have a few packages in my office that say gluten-free on purpose to see if it catches someone's eye. And people say all the time, oh, I try to buy everything gluten-free. And I say, why do you want it to have more calories in it? And it's because um, if I do some celiac counseling. If someone has celiac disease, of course they need to have gluten-free. It's really the only conditions with celiac disease or there are some people who are gluten intolerant. And if someone knows they really don't feel well, if they have gluten, then they shouldn't have gluten. But for the rest of us, um, gluten-free has really turned into a, a marketing tool. And so a lot of manufacturers will put gluten-free on a food label of something that never would have had gluten in the first place. Right. Um, and they do that because they know it draws people's attention. So people tend to think that if it's gluten-free, that it's gonna have less calories and it's gonna have less carbohydrates. And it certainly doesn't always. And very often it has more calories and more carbohydrates than the initial version. And it's not always as fortified with vitamins and minerals. So gluten-free definitely does not have anything to do with either weight loss or hormone balance. Yeah. So reading the labels, I think on that is so important because sometimes you'll see something that's gluten-free that's made with the most refined stuff with rice flour or with potato flour or all these things that, like you said, have no nutritional value. So definitely check the back, not just the front of the label. Mm -hmm. um, the front of the package is where all the, the marketing money goes, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I do a thing in my in one of my weight loss groups where I hold up packages and I have people guess like which is better from the front of the package. And I always say the answer is we shouldn't be deciding what to eat based on the front of the package. We always need to flip it over and look at the back and make our own informed choices rather than the marketing claims. Yeah. I want to go back to talking about eating at night for a second. So you said that, you know, at night, our body releases carbohydrates um, to keep blood sugar stable. And that's the time of day or night that fat is going to be burned as well. Um, so if someone does feel like they're hungry or they do need something, or maybe it's just their habit, they're trying to do better, but they're not ready to kind of give up the nighttime snacking, what would you say is a good approach for that person? Okay. So I definitely, and I hope that this didn't come off in the wrong way before. A lot of my patients do have a snack at night between dinner and bedtime, but I actually think it's the calories and the quality of that snack that are more important than the timing, which is different than the intermittent fasting, right? Where they would say, stop eating. What I see is that for most people between dinner and bedtime, they can get away with a 100 calorie snack and still lose weight fine. The parameters around that snack, I would ideally say that it should be about 20 grams of carbohydrate or less and have some kind of protein and or fiber in it. So I usually work with people to figure out, are they looking for something salty? Are they looking for something sweet? You know, what do they really want to have at night? And then I'm very big into buying things that are already portioned. I think that if someone thinks like, oh, I'm going to count out this amount or scoop out this amount, we may have the best intentions, but certainly at the end of the day, when we're tired and maybe we're stressed, it should not be a time of the day that we're trying to count or scoop anything carefully. So I think that it should be that we buy things individually portioned. Um, a lot of my patients that want something sweet at night will have an individually portioned pop, like a Yasso pop or an Enlightened pop. And the reason why I like these pops is that they're 100 calories or less, and they have some protein and some fiber in them. So they're not just like em empty carbohydrates. So they're all like around 16 grams of carbs, 
which is kind of like the carbs and having a small piece of fruit. Um, so it's not too many carbs, but there's some protein, some fiber. And the main thing is that they're portion controlled. So if someone wants sweet, I usually say have a pop. If someone wants salty, I would usually say like have a hundred calorie bag of popcorn or a hundred calorie bag of pistachios. And then we go over some free snacks. So free snacks are always vegetables, which I know are not so exciting, but I always say like, if we were hungry, we would eat the vegetables. Like if we are not hungry for the cucumber, that means we're probably not really hungry. Other free snacks would be like pickles, um, really no calories, no carbs, just a lot of flavor. So that would be fine. Um, but really like each night to ask yourself, do I want something salty or something sweet, hundred calories, and then try to stop at that. Okay. And then brush your teeth. That's a good one. When you're done with your snack, brush your teeth or like use Listerine and that could be a good signal that it's you know, time to stop eating and then yes. go to bed. Yeah. And your dad's a dentist. So you know all about that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> brush your teeth before you go to bed. All right. Um, you mentioned something to me about um, the blood type diet. We talk about food and nutrition all the time. And this is definitely one of the more crazy stuff that's out there. Um, has no scientific evidence or anything to back it up, but yet lots of people follow. I think people are craving some type of gimmicky solution to help them feel excited. Yes. Sometimes, um, yes. which I think then the letdown is so much bigger <laughs> Yes, because there really are no secrets yes. and it's, a, it's kind of a, a rude awakening to, to realize that for a lot of people, but let's talk a little bit about the blood type diet. So when we were talking about myths, that was something that came to mind because I was just interviewed by one of the big news outlets on the blood type diet. And I was thought like, I really need to go back and do more research before I talk about this. It's been around for like 20 years and I'm so used to telling people it's a myth, but I decided to really dig deeper and see if I could find any substantiation. And there's really not. <laughs> and it's unbelievable that for 20 years, people could be following this what my, my thought about it now, really looking at the four different categories is that they are all healthy eating. So when you go on the blood type diet, the first thing is you need to figure out your blood type. Not everyone knows their blood type, right? I so people have to go through that. And then you are given a list of foods that are good for your blood type, supposedly, and then a list of things to avoid that are supposedly not good for your blood type. So this goes back to my initial calorie message, which is that anytime we're told to cut out a whole category of foods, it's just another way to reduce calories. And so usually when someone's on the blood type diet, they're eating less calories than they were before because there's a whole bunch of foods that they are eliminating. And then when I looked just recently through the four different plans that are out there, none of them have like cookies or chips or processed foods or like, so it's basically just four different um, little you know styles of healthy eating. And so that's really why people lose weight on it, but there is no substantiation. And so in terms of like you just said, the letdown, when they asked me for this news article about, is there any um, danger to it? My answer was really just the disappointment of knowing that you're misled. And so it's a big thing that I do. I know it's a big thing that you do, which is like, just talk the truth about nutrition, even if it's not so exciting. You know, people you know, come in to see me, they, maybe they don't want to hear that they have to eat less calories or watch their carbs, but the facts are the facts. And so- It's I not as sexy, right? But it's right. still- yeah. Yeah. People want, I, I think everyone's looking for the edge too. Like what's the, I guess it's not that new, but what's the, the most exciting thing I can do or the most dramatic thing I can do, because it must mean that if I make a huge change, I'll see huge results. And that's so not true. 
I always say that you know, I have patients who have lost like a hundred pounds, like a lot of them who have lost like so much weight. And what we always talk about is when people want to know what kind of diet they were on yes. and that when they say to people, like, I just made changes in my lifestyle, people think if they're on a lifestyle plan, that it can't be as dramatic as a diet plan. And so I think part of what we do and show people is just by making healthy lifestyle choices, they really can lose just as much, if not more weight than someone who goes on a diet, because the diet's just going to be temporary. And the lifestyle, of course, is going to hopefully be sustainable. Exactly. And speaking of lifestyle, what is um, kind of where does exercise fit in? What are your thoughts about that? Okay, because I'll tell you something that I hear frequently, and I'm sure you do, too. Um, you know, if someone comes in and they lose the weight and then I don't see them for a little while and they come back and they've regained, it always seems like they believe it's because they stopped working out or because they injured themselves or something happened where they couldn't keep the workouts going. Um, and I think that's a big myth that's out there that exercise is a big part of weight loss. So tell me your thoughts about that. Okay. So I totally agree. And I think that we really need to separate the two, um, so I see very often in, in my office, people will come in saying, I go to like every soul cycle class and I have a personal trainer and I exercise for two hours a day. Why can't I lose weight? And the reason is, is that back to the calories that when someone's doing all that exercise, they may have a um, subconscious thought that they can eat more because they're doing all this, you know, all this exercise. So my first thing is that to lose weight, your calories really need to be in the right place. So there's no way that we could burn off overeating basically. But I also really see what you just said, that people have like such a connection in their minds that if they can't exercise, then their food plan goes out the window. So I think that we should be exercising for the health reasons. Biggest thing is mental health, right? So we should be exercising so it makes us feel good. It's good for our heart health. It does help to lower blood sugar. It does help to regulate hormones, but it's never enough to just exercise and think that we're gonna lose weight. One thing that's interesting, though, for the keeping it off part is there's the group, I'm sure you know about the National Weight Control Registry. And in that group, people have lost like at least 50 pounds and kept it off for at least five years. And what they did find was that the exercise became more important during the weight maintenance phase, that the people who lost weight and really kept it off were the ones who got active and stayed active, but they weren't doing anything crazy intense. They were just walking. They found that they walked more. And so it's good to know that we should be active. But it's also really important to know that if we can't be active, we can absolutely still lose weight and keep it off by managing our food. I've worked with people who are in wheelchairs, many people actually in wheelchairs, who were not able to exercise and who were able to lose weight just by managing their calories. Mm-hmm. And so it's important that we separate those two very much because mm-hmm. I do see that all the time, what you just said. Yeah. Someone says, you know, I hurt my ankle, I couldn't exercise, so I stopped logging my food. And I always say, what does one have to do with the other? So we yeah. just want to separate them. I think it's pretty common for people to overestimate how many calories they burn through exercise and underestimate what they're eating. Um, and that's not a good combination. Yeah. So if someone's tracking their food in an app, it's one of the things I actually talk about from the very beginning is that track your food in the app. You know, so you learn about how many calories you're taking in and the composition of those calories. And then I say, do not track your exercise in that same app. Because what I see all the time is that when people put their exercise in, I do think it overestimates how many calories they're burning. And what I see over and over is that if someone's eating the calories they burn, they don't lose weight, they stay the same. And so that's okay when they're ready to maintain. But when they're working on losing weight, we should definitely not be eating what we're burning. Can we talk a little bit about insulin and exercise? So what exactly is the impact of 
moving your body in any capacity on blood sugar levels and insulin. Cause a lot of our listeners are dealing with insulin resistance, dealing with some carbon tolerance, you know, to some degree. And everyone wants to know what is the best way to manage that working on the food, but also incorporating movement. Okay. Yeah. So it's a good question. So, um, a lot of my patients have diabetes and a lot of them wear continuous glucose monitors. So it's so helpful for me to be able to see the ups and downs in their blood sugar during the day. So while we can't see insulin production in the same way as we can see the blood sugar, it is a good indicator that they go hand in hand. And so the most important things for regulating insulin. So we talked about like a little bit lower carbs, spacing out carbs during the day, but then keeping our cells as sensitive as they could be to the insulin that's being produced. And so a way to keep our cells sensitive is to exercise, but it doesn't need to be high intensity and it doesn't need to be all at once. If anything, what I find is that when people do shorter things, but spaced out a few times during the day, it increases their cell sensitivity throughout the day. And it gets hard to see it in the insulin picture, but we see it in the blood sugar picture that if someone goes for a walk for 10 or 15 minutes after each meal, if I see on their glucose monitor that their blood sugar was heading up, but just like a 15 minute walk, their blood sugar starts to come back down. And the reason why that happens is that their cells from, their, from the activity, the cells wake up and they get more sensitive to the insulin that's being produced or the insulin that they're giving themselves. And when the cells are more sensitive, they use the insulin better, they accept it better. And then we don't have to make as much insulin at that time. And so we know that insulin is a fat storing hormone. And so by being active and being able to produce less insulin, we won't have as much fat, fat storage going on. Mm -hmm. Okay. That's good to know. Um, let's talk a little bit about alcohol. So we're recording this the day before new year's Eve. And I know that, you know, with the pandemic and everything that's going on, people are home more, people are drinking alcohol more. And even on a regular weekend, you know, alcohol is a, not a big part, but it is a part of a lot of my listeners life and they want to be able to be social and enjoy what kind of um, tips do you have or what are some of the misconceptions that you see around drinking alcohol and weight management? Okay. So I would say a myth is that we have to cut out all alcohol. And when people go on very restrictive plans, they'll, you know, they'll come to see me and they'll say, well, you know, once I was on a plan where I had no alcohol, no sugar, no caffeine, they list all these things that they thought that they had to eliminate. Um, I believe, first of all, in an 80-20 concept that if we're eating in a careful way, 80% of the time, that we can and should have 20% flexibility to spend extra calories on things that are really worth it to us. And so for a lot of people, alcohol goes in that 20%. I would say during the pandemic, I think that I saw um, the most extra calories coming in in two categories. It was either people who were baking more or people who were drinking more. And so we definitely wanna be mindful of the alcohol calories, but we can certainly fit them in. So the first thing is to think about this 80-20 concept. And some people will say, well, I don't wanna spend calories on alcohol. I have a special cheese I like or a special dessert I like. So it's just the first thing is knowing, okay, I'm gonna spend some of my extra calories on alcohol. I'm gonna budget for it. The next thing is trying to figure out just all different ways to be able to drink more for less calories. So we can go through each actually different alcohol category and talk about it. So the first thing is wine. Um, well, actually, if we compare the calories to each other, five ounces of wine is about the same amount of calories as one shot, shot of hard alcohol and about the same amount of calories of a light beer, which means that they're each about 100 calories in that careful portion size. One of the things is that we don't always pour that careful portion size. So <laughs> five ounces of wine is considered a serving. 
if someone's pouring wine at home and they're using like a big wide goblet, there's a very small chance that they're pouring five ounces into it. There's a much better chance that they're pouring 10 ounces in. And so the first thing is to really know what we're pouring. And so at my um, country house, we have these mason jars that we drink out of. And what's really great is that when I'm up there, I know I'm more conscious about how much wine I'm drinking because the mason jars have little lines on it. So when I'm pouring the wine and I'm forced to see one ounce, two ounce, three ounces. So that could be a strategy is to drink out of like a marked glass, at least initially to see how many ounces. Another strategy for wine is to make a wine spritzer. And so this works better with white or a rosé, but if you mix your wine with club soda or seltzer, you can have a lot more volume for less calories. So if someone said, okay, I'm gonna have five ounces of wine and you put that in, now you have a 10 ounce drink. So it gets you more volume. Um, one of the myths is that alcohol needs to be clear for it to be okay. I know, I think that came from like Atkins time and people also always think that wine is gonna raise their blood sugar and insulin because it's made from grapes. That's actually also a myth. Wine doesn't raise blood sugar, so therefore it doesn't raise insulin. Um, it's really just about the ounces that we accumulate and also making sure that we don't mix stuff with a sugary mix. So if someone is having a hard alcohol, that they should also mix that with club soda or seltzer and not, of course, like juice or soda, because that is gonna add more calories and carbs to it. Um, and let's see what else, I don't know if you, how much more you wanna talk about alcohol, but there's a lot to talk about <laughs> with alcohol. <laughs> So with the hard alcohol, one tip there could be to maybe buy some of the canned drinks. So like the spiked seltzers, mm -hmm. this goes back to the idea of really knowing how much we're having. So just like the hundred calorie snacks being helpful, there's so many of those canned spiked seltzer kind of things on the market that are like 90 to hundred calories each. So it is a good way to keep tabs on how much you're having, which could be helpful for calories and carbs and alcohol consumption. <laughs> Okay, good. I think those are really good suggestions. Sometimes we want the practical kind of like, tell me what is okay. Tell me what's the good way to go about it. Because it's unrealistic to think that someone wouldn't drink or they'll cut out alcohol. They may do it for a month or two at best, but then it's going to come back. You want to be social. You don't want to be miserable th throughout your health journey. That's not a good place to be in mentally. Yeah. But knowing like that, if you grab a champagne flute to pour your wine into rather than the big white goblet, really helps. That's easy. Like, yeah. so if we know that just taking like a tall skinny glass rather than a big wide glass is going to help us to drink more, but have, you know, drink less, but have the perception that it's the same amount. It is really helpful and easy to do those things. Yes. Yeah. And it's all about like awareness. Like you said, you just want to keep yourself aware and kind of paying attention and mindful to those little things. And then nothing has to be cut out, which is beautiful. Right. Exactly. Talking about, um, speaking about you know, the kind of like the mental aspect of it and mindset, what's the biggest myth or misconception that you see with people around their own behavior or their own mindset in the weight loss journey? Okay. So this is such a huge part of it. Like is the mindset when I do my weight loss group that I've been doing for years, the first four weeks were about like, you know, what to buy and what to get in the supermarket, how to shop and what to eat when we're dining out. It was like four weeks. And then the whole rest of the program was on mindset because I always said if it was as easy as just knowing what to do, we would meet with people once or twice, they would be all set and they would be on their way. So the mindset part is of course huge. I would say that the biggest um, misconception or the biggest way that people mess themselves up is that they feel like if they make one and I hate using the word bad, but if they make a choice in the day that they feel like isn't a good choice, that they messed up their whole day, right? So that they say, oh, I already messed up today, so I'll start over tomorrow. 
or after the weekend or after the vacation. And so I coined something a number of years ago that I called the GPS method. And I talk to my patients all the time about turning on their internal GPS and recalculating and getting back on track. And so I think that the biggest difference that I see between the people who lose weight and get to where they wanna be and stay there compared to people who lose it and gain it back and lose it and gain back more has nothing to do with being on track 100% of the time because no one should need to be on track 100% of the time. I don't think you or I eat perfectly 100%. You know, that's like an eating disorder to eat that carefully. Um, but I, the biggest difference is how quickly we recalculate and get back on track. That's what really helps us to get there and to stay there. And so often people will say, if I so-called mess up in the morning, I messed up the whole day, so then I might as well eat whatever I want and I'll start over again tomorrow. What I see is that when people realize that they could start over their day at any time, that makes a huge difference with their success. I was talking to a patient the other day who said, she was actually almost excited about this. She had to go into the office. She had been working from home. She had to go into the office. She went there, there was brownies in the kitchen. She ate a brownie as soon as she walked into the office. But because she has her internal GPS on, she said that she, she said, and I recalculated, I got back on track. The rest of the day was good. And she still lost weight that week. Mm -hmm. But in the past, she would have said, I can't believe I ate a brownie in the morning. I messed up the whole day. And so that's a big myth that we want to know that we can absolutely turn things around at any point of the day. And it can still be a weight loss week, even if that happens. I love that you said you can start over your day at any point. That's such a big one. I think a lot of people really kind of go into a cycle of, you know, not bad choices, but choices that are not desirable. And then it's really hard to, to recalculate from there. Like you said, I think about it. Like if we spent too much money, like that's a way I think people could visualize that even more. Like if you, let's say you went out on a shopping trip and you picked up a bag and it was more than you wanted to spend, but you got, you bought the bag anyway. I think most people wouldn't say, well, now because I bought the bag, I might as well go buy like a new coat and shoes also. We would say, oh my goodness, I spent too much money. I need to save up now for a while to balance it out. And so it would be the same kind of thinking with food. If we spend too much, we just need to go back into savings mode rather than like emptying the bank account. So good. That's such a good analogy. Um, any other myths that you want to mention today? Anything that pops up periodically or that you see really hindering people? It's a good question. There's so many of them, but I also think it's just, it's just about getting the facts. So um, I think just talk to someone who is well-trained, who's a registered dietitian. It's, as you said before, this doesn't need to be like so sexy. It's just the facts. And I guess if something sounds too good to be true, it probably is, unfortunately. I think at this time of the year, we just definitely wanna keep our guard up. There's gonna be so many ads right now, like at the beginning of January for all these you know, new weight loss programs. Um, keto has been like a big thing for this year. And I've seen so many people come in to see me who were sent by their cardiologist because they went on keto to lose weight and they ended up with really high cholesterol. Um, Cause on keto, you know, it's really a reduction in carbs, but they say to increase fat. And for a lot of people, when they increase their saturated fat, it increases their LDL cholesterol. So it's not a good idea, but really when people are losing weight on keto, it's because they're not eating carbs. So anytime someone's cutting out all of their carbs, no bread, rice, cereal, pasta, cookies, chips, cake, candy, they're going to lose weight because they're eating less calories. And so I guess just, um, just to be mindful, just to be, you know, 
be wise about your choices and use your common sense. I think most people know what makes sense to them. And so if it sounds too good to be true, call Daphne and ask her and she'll let you know. Um, all right. Well, maybe they can call you as well. Where can people find you if they want to get in touch? Um, so my website is elizabethdirobertis.com. Um, and so that's the best way to get to me. Okay. My website. Awesome. And I'll link to that in the show notes below as well. All right. Sounds great. Thank you so much for having me. This was really fun. Thanks for being here. Thank you. Take care. Thank you for listening to today's episode. I hope you enjoyed the interview and I've found a lot of great insights, strategies, and information in what we discussed today. For more information, please visit the show notes below so you can get all the details, links, and recommendations that were discussed today. And if you like this podcast and what you've heard today, leave a review and subscribe to the show so you never miss when new episodes are out and you also help more people find this information. I'll be here again next week with a new episode. Until then, be well. Bye for now.